let me invite you to grab your Bibles if you have one and turn them open to Judges chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, I know that we have some on the table in the back. You can grab one of those and use. You can also let that be our gift to you if you do not own a Bible. Uh, Judges chapter 3. We're going to pick up our study of this Old Testament book that we began a couple of weeks ago. And as you find your way there, let me ask you um, to consider the question, what are you ashamed of? What are you ashamed of in your life or about your life? Another way of asking that question is, what are you, what are you tempted to hide? What are, you, what are you holding back from either God in your relationship with him or from each other in your relationship with one another? What is it that you are ashamed of? You see, shame is something that's been plaguing the human condition since we were exiled from Eden. Uh, in fact, before we were exiled from Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned against God and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're told that they were naked and ashamed. And immediately in response to this existential crisis they were feeling and uh, the shame that they sensed as a result of breaking uh, the rule that God had set up in paradise, they went into hiding. And so they hid in the woods. And then when God called them out of hiding, they still tried to cover up. They still tried to keep themselves covered. And so they grabbed fig leaves and they put that around their waist. They were trying to deal with this sense of shame that they were feeling. And so when I ask you, what are you ashamed of, the, the way we can answer that question is by um, asking, what are we trying to hide from? And then we can go one step further and say, what are you trying to hide behind? Are you trying to hide behind your job? Are you trying to hide behind a pasted smile? Are you trying to hide behind your bank account? Are you trying to hide behind your spouse or your kids? Are there What things in creation that are you, are you trying to hide behind? Now, I want us to consider these questions because uh, shame is a very uh, complex plague in the human heart. You know, we're ashamed of things that we've done, right? There are things in our past, decisions that we've made, things that we've done that we are ashamed of and we don't want anybody to find out. There's also things that we are ashamed of as it relates to not only the things that we have done, but the things that have been done to us. When someone has been victimized or abused, the the shame that arises in them as a result of that, that too is something we want to hide and hold back and feel like we can't open up and talk about. So we're ashamed of the things that we've done. We're also ashamed of the things that's been done to us. And we can go one step further and say uh, that we're ashamed of the things that we might think about ourselves. That there are ways that we view ourselves that might not measure up to the way our culture would have us measure up. And we don't look the right way or walk the right way. We're not gifted the right way or skilled the right way. And so what happens as we begin to think about that is that we also become ashamed of kind of who we are. When we stand in front of a mirror, we don't like what we see. When we're interacting with other people, we don't like how those interactions go because we don't feel like we're living up to other people's expectations. We're not sinking into social norms and rhythms, and it makes us feel disjointed. It makes us feel ashamed. And, and so what happens a lot of times is we begin to pull back, and we disconnect, and we go into hiding. And so sometimes we just isolate ourselves from community. We isolate ourselves from other relationships that could lead us towards flourishing in the gospel, and we just, we just hide as a result of all the shame that we are feeling. You see, shame is a feeling of distress at three things, essentially. Shame is a feeling of distress when we consider our absurdities, when we consider our deficiencies, and when we consider our deformities. 
That shame is that distress we feel when we think about our absurdities, our deficiencies, and our deformities. And that is true whether what we're thinking is real or imagined. Shame can be attached to that which is true, and it can be attached to that which is an illusion. And I put this theme before us tonight because as we step into this story in Judges chapter 3, I want us to consider how its message, how this story might lead us to Jesus in such a way that we can find freedom from the various shame that we uh, are plagued by and the shame that oftentimes steals our joy and ruptures our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another. And it's kind of ironic because we're stepping into a story that, quite honestly, Christians can sometimes be ashamed of. Uh, There are some things in the Bible that we want to hide from people. There are some things in the Bible that we don't want to talk about because these stories seem to be a little too graphic or they seem to be a little too raw or a little too real. They seem to be, in some ways, too offensive. And so there's even things in the Bible that we're tempted to be ashamed of and want to hide. But... But if we do that, we'll be doing our souls a disservice because every passage, every scripture in the Bible was given to us by God so that we might find our way to Jesus. And this is another story that we can read and we can study together and let it serve us by drawing us closer and closer and closer to the reality of Jesus and the way that he wants to change Our lives. And so here in Judges chapter 3, we're picking up with a story that reads kind of like a political cartoon, or better yet, a theological satire is more what I kind of view this story as. And it picks up in verse 12 concerning uh, a guy by the name of Ehud. And you're going to see all three of these types of shame present, or these sources of shame, whether it be our absurdities, our deficiencies, our deformities, all present within this story. We're also going to see how we might find that shame covered by the grace and the goodness of God. So here, beginning of verse 12, this is what we read. The story begins on a sad note. Once again, it says the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. You might want to circle that word again. Then it says, he gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel. That is, God gave this king of Moab power over his people. And the reason for that is because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. Because of their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience, their lack of faith, their lack of trust. Verse 13. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites then served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up this guy named Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab, and this is where the story gets a little sticky. I don't know, pun intended, you'll see why. Verse 16, Ehud uh, made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's an intense description. I, I imagine every time I read this story, Jabba the Hutt. So that's kind of who I have in mind, this, this mob boss, oppressive king and ruler who's really, really big. Verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence, and all his attendants left him. We'll talk about why that is here in a moment. Verse 20, then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. 
Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And then we get this vivid description that junior high kids love and the waste came out. See, junior high kids love this story. Adults tend to blush at this story when we think about some of the things that's actually going down. It says that waste came out. And then in verse 23, Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself, meaning he was going to the restroom. And then verse 25, the servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace 80 years. And so here we have another story, the second story in the book concerning a judge that God would raise up to deliver his people from oppressive, dire, self-inflicted circumstances. And this deliverer's name is Ehud. Now, I want you to think of first about kind of the, the elements of shame that are present in here because you find there are the shackles of shame are present all throughout this passage, beginning first with our absurdities. Remember how I said Shame is a feeling of distress at our absurdities. Now, it's absurd to consider how Israel continues to mess up again and again. That's kind of when life for us gets absurd. This is kind of the, uh, a mirror image into the human heart. But we just can't, we just continue to mess things up. That God will show us grace. God will have mercy to us. God will be good to us. And then in the very next breath, we'll find ourselves again and again doing the things that God does not approve of doing the things that God is not uh, honored by. And so this again and again, as we continue to mess things up, screwing up over and over and over again, you see this in verse 12 with the people of Israel. And again, I would circle that word again in verse 12 because that's the key. The Israelites know what God did for them with Othniel and the deliverance that God brought them with that judge. But not long after that, at some point, the Israelites again began to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. You see, when we begin to think about sin and how it affects the human heart, we're talking about something that's more than an act. We're talking about a power that is oppressive, a power that can dominate us. It's a power that must be severed. It's a power that must be conquered and overthrown from the heart, from the throne of the heart. Otherwise, we will continue to live a life of absurdity. And we will find ourselves with that one track playing in our mind over and over and over again that we just keep screwing up. We say things like, or we think things, man, I looked at porn again. I drank too much again. I wasted time again. I lied again. I lost my temper again. 
And all of us have this track that can surface in our minds of again and again and again of these patterns and these cycles that we find ourselves in. And eventually, we have to recognize how absurd it is. It is absurd to be treated so well by the God of grace and the God of mercy, yet to continue to have this track. I'm screwing up again. I'm screwing up again. I'm screwing up again. It is an absurdity, and it's the source of so much shame in our lives. Because when we're honest about that track and we're honest about the ways in which we repeatedly rebel against the Lord, we, we cannot help but think this, this is just absurd. So you see the absurdity of the Israelites and the sin in their lives, but you also see it uh, actually kind of illustrated in the description of King Moab. Eglon, his description in this story kind of reflects the absurdity of idolatry. If you remember verse 17, it says that he was an extremely fat man. This means that he was ruling others, feasting on the tributes that the Israelites were bringing him for 18 years. So he would, be, he would sit back and be served by everyone around him. And while being served by everyone around him, he became really, really large. He became a very fat man. And essentially what you find in Ehud is a, is a lifeless character long before he's ever uh, killed or assassinated by Ehud. He's a lifeless character who's essentially become like who he's worshiping. He's becoming like the lifeless idols that were littered all throughout the temple. You see, the absurdity of idolatry is that you and I will inevitably become like who or what we worship. Whatever it is that we seek life from, escape to, whatever ways in which we seek to deal with the shame in our lives and try to cover it up, eventually we'll find ourselves enslaved to that and we will become as lifeless as that, as lifeless as that thing itself. This is Eglon's description as he reflects the absurdity of idolatry. You also kind of see the absurdity of idolatry in verse 19 when we're told that Ehud actually walked past the carved images near Gilgal. And then in verse 26 when he's leaving after, after performing his assassination, it says that he passed by the carved images once again. Now, notice the absurdity of this. The idols that were littering the land did not protect King Eglon when Ehud showed up. They did not protect him. They did not deliver him. They did nothing for him. Why? Because they were lifeless. Why? Because they were idols. This is the absurdity of idolatry, the things that we look to in creation that we elevate above the God who created us, that which we elevate above the God who sent his son to save us, that when we do that, we find ourselves worshiping things that can do nothing for us things that cannot change us, things that cannot deliver us from the power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of death. They can do nothing for us. So you see the absurdity of sin and the absurdity of idolatry there in this story. But then our absurdities give way to the second dynamic, our deficiencies. Our deficiencies speak to the things that we, this tendency that we have to give up what God has given to us. And we create deficits in our lives as a result of our sin and as a result of our idolatries. And here's where you begin to see that. If you notice in verse 13, it says that after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, it says that he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession. He took territory. He took possession of the city of the Palms. Now, the city of the Palms is Jericho. Jericho was the first city God gave Israel upon entering the Promised Land. It was the first display of God's grace towards them and God's power for them. 
You know the story, the walls of Jericho, that the people of Israel marched around and then they began to worship and sing and blow their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down and God was handing that city to the people of Israel saying, look, this is the first sign of how powerful I'm going to be for you. This is the first sign of how good I'm going to be to you. But here in verse 13, as a result of their sin and their idolatry, what's happening? Well, they're giving back what God had given to them. As this king of Moab had come in and he had re-seized the city, he had taken more ground that God had already given to the people of Israel. So what you see there is a deficit. What you see there is deficiency. What you see there is the people of Israel giving up what God has given to them. And the reality is this happens in each of our lives all too often. Our sin and our idolatry does carry consequences. And in those moments, we can find ourselves giving up what God has graciously given to us. So you might say those moments where we think, well, I lost my job because I just couldn't get to work on time. I lost my job because I couldn't be responsible enough to, to get to work on time, and to do the tasks that were assigned to me, and to work well for the glory of God, and then I eventually lost this job. What is that? That's a deficit due to a lack of responsibility sometimes. Or you might say, man, I, I lost my spouse because I couldn't stop looking at pornography. And that sin and that idolatry begins to reap consequences in your life as you are giving up ground and deficits are being created as you are losing what God has graciously and so generously given to you. You could also say, man, I'll, I'll lose my kids' respect because I keep, I keep lashing out at them and losing my temper and a deficit is being created as a result of my sin or as a result of my idolatry. Absurdities lead to deficiencies and all of us, if we're honest, can identify areas in our lives that we have given up. Maybe for you it's a friendship or a relationship that you couldn't keep because maybe you were more like King Eglon and you wanted to sit back and be served and not serve and you just consumed from people and not contributed to people and that sin and that idolatry, what? It created a deficit between you and others. So you begin to lose friendships, you begin to lose relationships, you begin to lose intimacy with other human beings and deficit was being created. You were giving up what God graciously desired to give you. You see, shame is that feeling of distress when we consider our absurdities, and it's the feeling of distress when we consider our deficiencies. But then there's one other piece that you see in this text, that is shame can also times stem from the distress we feel when it comes to our deformities, that those things that we don't like about ourselves or the ways in which we do not feel like we measure up, and we're not measuring up to anyone's expectations. What's interesting about how these stories, Othniel's from last week and Ehud's from this week are put together is that last week, Othniel was a judge. He was a deliverer that nobody was surprised by. You might think Othniel was the kind of guy that, that if anybody was going to be used by the Lord to do something significant, it was that guy. I mean, Othniel, after all, he came from good stock. He was from the tribe of Judah. The Judah was, was the leading tribe amongst all the tribes in Israel during this time. This was the tribe from whom the king would one day come. And this was his stock. That's the tribe he was identified with. But not only did he come from good stock, he was an honorable family man who, who seized marriage, who went after it with everything that he had. And he, and he was an honorable family man from what all we can tell of the lack of details in his story. Normally when details arise in Judges, they're negative details, so if they're not there, that means there's probably some positive things that we didn't need to know about. So you have a respectable, honorable family man, but you also have a guy with a proven military track record. 
a guy who trusted God and took risks, and the Lord came through for him. So Othniel was the kind of guy that nobody was surprised by. Everyone expected God to use a guy like that. But then we step into Ehud, and Ehud's story is completely different. Ehud is someone that no one would have expected to be used by God to deliver his people. And the reason for that is twofold. One, we're told that Ehud came from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was the youngest son of the tribe of the youngest son of Jacob, which means that the Benjamites were the youngest, uh, smallest, and from, from what we can tell, the least significant tribe amongst all the tribes in Israel. So this is a guy that's coming from a small, insignificant tribe, so he doesn't come from good stock, right? He didn't enter Israel with privilege, so to speak. He entered Israel from the underside of things and had to work his way up. So he came from a small, insignificant tribe, but then the biggest detail about him comes when we're told that he was left-handed, that he was a left-handed Benjamite. Another way of translating that is that this, this was a man who could not use his right hand. It actually doesn't say he was left-handed. It actually says in Hebrew that he couldn't use his right hand. And so this led many scholars to believe this guy was handicapped, that this guy was crippled. And to be handicapped and crippled in antiquity wasn't uh, a noble thing. People did not treat or try to treat people of handicap well. It was, a, it was a brutal world. And yet here you have this guy, this left-handed Benjamite, whom God raises up to use. This is the subversive Savior that we're inter- introduced to beginning in verse 16. And what's interesting about his story, as you begin to read it, you begin to see this theme about how Ehud's weakness was his strength. Ehud's weakness, the fact that he was left-handed, the fact that he, was, he could not use his right hand, that weakness about him, that deformity in him, turns out to be the very reason why God could use him in the way that he did, as his weakness was his strength. You see this in a couple of ways. The fact that the people of Israel dispatched Ehud with the tribute to bring to Eglon meant that they could trust him. They said, okay, well, uh, we're going to send him with the tribute to deliver to the king because the king's going to look at him and not be threatened by him in any way. Plus, if Ehud wanted to run away with the tribute and run away with all the, the food and the grain that we were bringing to this oppressive king, he's not going to get very far because he's weak. And so they allowed him to go and to take this tribute, most likely because of his handicap. And then when he arrived and he approached Eglon, it, we're told that he received a private meeting with the king. Why is that? How could this guy have gotten a private meeting with, meeting with the king of Eglon? Well, It's because he didn't perceive him as a threat, right? I'm not challenged by this guy. I'm not threatened by this guy. And so he brought this guy in and had a private meeting with him. And his weakness, again, was his strength. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, that that comments on all the ways in which God would turn weaknesses into strengths and the way that God tends to use people in this way. And, And there's a subtle reference to Ehud in that passage. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 11 verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Now that could refer to a lot of people, not least of which Ehud. This one whose weakness was his strength. It's a remarkable thing to know that we serve a God who's often doing these types of things. And it is an incredible encouragement to know that God does this so that we can never disqualify ourselves from being used by God. 
We can never say we're too weak to be a part of the things of God in this world. We're never too weak. We're too weak to make a difference for the glory of God in the city of Seattle or for the glory of God in my family or the glory of God in my friendships. We can never say we are too weak because we serve a God who's capable of turning weaknesses into strengths. He has a long track record of doing this. You consider the Apostle Paul. There was a moment in his story in the New Testament when we're told he was uh, given a thorn in the flesh, this physical ailment that's really hard to, we don't know exactly what it's in reference to, but we do know that Paul didn't like it. That was the one thing about his life that he wanted to change. In fact, he asked God, would you please change this about me? Remove this thorn from my flesh. But every time he asked that question, the Lord responded, no, I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to take it away because I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient for you and that my power is perfected in weaknesses. There are some prayers that God will not answer because he wants us to learn that lesson. There are things about our condition in this world that God may not change. He may not remove your anxiety completely. He may not remove your bouts with depression entirely. He may not change the things that you consider to be weak about you precisely because he wants you to learn that his grace is sufficient. He wants you to experience that his power is perfected in weaknesses. And he wants you to experience it so that others might see it and your life becomes a trophy of his grace in this world. This is essentially what God is doing with Ehud. He's turning his weaknesses into strength. This is what God does in the life of Paul. This is what God has done in more men and women than we can count. I'll just give you one example. A lady by the name of Elisa Morgan, who was the president of an organization called MOPS International. MOPS means mothers of preschoolers. Some, of our, some members in our church actually utilize MOPS and have benefited from their organization. And the thing about this lady's story is that her parents... Uh, were divorced when she was about five years old. And so she, she and her two siblings were raised by their mom, and their mom was an alcoholic. And some of her most vivid memories growing up in her house was her, was her mom just kind of waddling down the hallway with a glass of scotch that she's spilling against the walls. And she would um, only seems to recall from her childhood that, that Christmases and birthdays, they just kind of ended in the warped glow of booze, to use her phrase. <laughs> This was her childhood. This was her upbringing. This was the example of a mom that she had. But then she goes on to say this. Before she accepted the position to be president of this organization, she said, 10 years ago, when I was asked to consider leading Mops International, a vital ministry that nurtures mothers, I went straight to my knees and then to the therapist's office. How could God use me who had never been mothered to nurture mothers? And this is a question that comes out of so many people in so many different ways. How can God use me to mother others if I myself was never mothered? How can God use me to be a faithful husband if my dad wasn't a faithful husband? How can God use me to raise a kid with an awareness of the gospel when I wasn't raised early and often with an awareness of the gospel? So this question comes out of us in so many ways where we want to disqualify ourselves because of the handicaps that we feel about the lives that we've lived up to this point. But then listen to what she says. This was her conclusion. She said, how can God use me to, mother, to, nur- to uh, nurture mothers when I myself wasn't mother? Then she said, the answer came as I gazed into the eyes of our mothers around me and saw their needs mirroring my own. And she said, God seemed to take my deficits and make them my offering. In other words, God began to take my weaknesses and make them strengths. 
And this is a pattern, this is a process that God works out in all of our lives in a myriad of ways where he turns our weaknesses into strengths. I I think about my own life. And I think about the first time I was ever asked to stand up in a church and to speak and to give an announcement. I think I was a junior in high school and I was invited to give some type of announcement uh, during a service. And I stepped up to the microphone and I looked at all the people and I saw all the people looking at me. And I, I found myself just getting paralyzed and my tongue just dried up super fast and got really, really big. So I stood there for probably 30 seconds. It felt like 30 minutes just looking at people. They were looking at me. I didn't say a word. I stood there, and then in a flash, I just turned and walked away. (laughs) I didn't give an announcement. I didn't say a word. I was so paralyzed by this thought of talking to people. I just couldn't do it. That was a weakness that I sensed about my life. And that was true in other environments, too. I just didn't like standing in front of people. I did not like talking to people. I was relatively shy, relatively reserved. But then yet in college, God would call me to serve in pastoral ministry and to preach and teach the Bible and to do the things that I'm doing now. And and I'll be honest with you, week in and week out, in my mind, as I worship the Lord, I'm worshiping thinking, my Lord is taking my weaknesses and turning them into strengths. He's perfecting his power in weaknesses. He's using uh, my feeble attempts and feeble offerings to to bring light to the scriptures so that our hearts might see the beauty of Jesus in in passages of the Bible so that things can happen in us and for us and all around us. God has a long history, and if you're honest with yourselves, chances are when you've been your weakest, by God's grace, that's when you've been your strongest when you felt the weakest, that's when God has used you most effectively to encourage those around you. That's when God has used you most mightily, mightily to advance his kingdom, when you felt like you couldn't do what he was telling you to do, or you felt like you were fumbling and bumbling your way along, God would come through and he does things for you that you never thought possible. This is one of the applications from the story of Ehud, where we see this man whose weakness was his strength. Because he was handicapped, he was able to do the things God wanted him to do. But then the second dynamic you see here is that his risk was others' reward. His risk was others' reward. Now, there's reason to believe that when Ehud set up this second meeting and he went back to hang out with Eglon and to deliver this message from the Lord that nobody else knew what he was up to, that he didn't share this plan with those who were traveling with him and he didn't share this plan with the people of Israel, that I don't think it was a national conspiracy to send Ehud to do this thing. I think he took it upon himself. I think he was taking great risk. I think had he tried and failed and lost his life, Israel wouldn't have blinked an eye. They wouldn't have thought, second, uh, thought anything else about him because he was too insignificant in their eyes. And if he tried and failed, then who cares? But this guy was taking all of this risk upon himself. All of this risk, and what you find is that his risk was others' reward, that because he does what he does, the people of Israel find deliverance. The people of Israel are liberated from King Eglon. Now, yesterday I was hanging out. Well, I wasn't hanging out. I was on Facebook, and I reconnected with a friend of mine who's part of a church plant in Portland, Oregon. And her name is Kristen Fletcher, and she and her husband moved from rural Tennessee to plant a church in Portland. And she's told me time and time again about how insecure they feel about that calling and doing that. Like, how could they reach people in Portland to plant a church and She's really insecure about her accent. She's really insecure about her, her education and the level of her education and those things. And, but yet here they are. They're planting a church in Portland. And uh, Kristen was asked by the Oregon legislature to come and to talk about uh, the deficit of funding for public schools. 
And this was a concern that, that rests squarely on her heart, something she was very passionate about. And so she found herself standing before the Oregon legislature uh, advocating for the inequity in public education funding. And listen to what she says. This is what she, how she described herself. She said, I may have a very thick accent and not be the most eloquent with words, but I do have a voice. As a person of faith, I must stand up to injustice. God has a heart and cares deeply for all people. This is what gives me strength, and this is what keeps me pressing on. We might translate, this is what keeps me taking risks, putting myself out there, being vulnerable, doing things that I did not think I could do or would ever be able to do, but yet her risk in that moment to stand and to speak, it could reap rewards for other people, right? Oftentimes, when God calls us to do things, whether it's taking a risk or making a sacrifice, it's not just for our sake. It's for the sake of those around us. It's for others' sake. It's how does God want you to be a blessing to people around you? But if you're going to be a blessing, then you are going to have to take risks. You're going to have to do things that are going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to have to do things that risk you falling flat on your face and failing And apart from God's grace and apart from God's goodness and his power, you will fail if not for God's God's faithfulness. So you have this moment in Ehud's life where he's risking for other people's rewards. And this is where we begin to see how Ehud begins to nudge us in Jesus' direction. He begins to nudge us towards the reality of the gospel. I mean, you consider Jesus, what was his strength when he entered this world? You know that it was the weakness of Jesus that made him strong, right? It was the fact that when he entered this world, he came in the form of a homeless Nazarene. It was the fact that he lived a life of humble obedience to his father, serving those, risking his reputation for the sake of redemption, constantly putting himself in vulnerable positions while seeking to reach others and to advance his kingdom in this world. You know, the beauty of Jesus is that his, weak, his weakness was his strength, that God took on flesh and he lived this life and he would go to the cross and what would happen to him there? He would be killed. You see, when God decided to redeem and to reclaim his people and to deliver us from sin, Satan, and death, he did not come in the form of the Avengers. He didn't send Thor or Captain America. He did not send these powerful heroes that we dream up that are figments of our imagination. Why? Because God's imagination is different. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So when God sought to deliver us, he did not come immediately with heavy-fisted power. He came in the humble service of the Savior. So that Jesus would live and he would die and he would rise again. His weakness would be his strength. But not only is his weakness his strength, as God would deliver us, not in a Hollywood Hollywood way at all, but Jesus, of course, would risk everything for our reward. That everything he did, he did for us. He did not have to come into this world. He did not have to live and to die or to rise again. He did not enhance his glory in any way by doing that. But what he did was he extended his grace. He swept us up into that so that his risk would become others' reward. This is the reality of the gospel. This is the beauty of Jesus. And so you have this story here where Ehud, is his weakness is his strength. He's risking for the sake of other people. But then you move on to the end of the story and you begin to get this picture of victory. And it's a remarkable picture because after Ehud assassinates King Eglon, the people of Israel then brought into the story and they begin to go to work. They begin to join him on the battlefield, don't they? 
And there's a principle as we're reading the Bible that I want you to keep in mind as you're studying these Old Testament stories. And the principle is that with every, every gospel principle, every gospel reality that we are taught in the New Testament, it's all illustrated and pictured in the Old Testament. And what you begin to see at this point in this story is an illustration or a picture of the Christian life in the new. And I'll, I'll help you see where it comes from. And this is this, the process of victory. How can we find victory over sin and Satan and death? How can our shame be covered? Well, one, you have to see the Savior's concern. You have to see the Savior's concern. When, when Ehud showed up and he went into Eglon's quarters, notice that Ehud did not immediately go after the minions. He didn't start fighting the servants and the soldiers of the, of the Moabite army. No, he goes right to the, throne, the guy on the throne. And he sticks his sword into the belly of the king, saying, I've come to dethrone you. You've got to understand that the work of the gospel in your life and the work of the gospel in my life always, always starts with the, always starts with the ultimate concern of our life. That the, the Savior's concern is the condition of our hearts. The Savior's concern is who is seated on the throne of your life. And if on the throne of your life is any person, place, or thing other than Jesus, Jesus has come to shove his sword into that and to render that Lord dead at our feet. Jesus did not come to modify our behavior. He did not come to, to deal with the symptoms of our lives. He came to deal with the root of our problems. And the root of our problems is that we enthrone the self, we enthrone sin, we enthrone everything but Jesus. And Jesus says, that's got to change. And so the Savior's chief concern in your life is the condition of your heart and who rules it. It's the condition of your heart and who has it. And if anyone has it but him, he's come to deal with that reality. So we want to see the Savior's concern. Victory starts there where Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in our lives. But not only do we want to see the Savior's concern, we want to trust the Savior's sword. And this is where this story gets interesting. We want to trust the Savior's sword. When you look back at verse 16, it says that Ehud made himself a double-edged sword. Now, edge is a Hebrew idiom, also translated mouth in many other places. So another way of reading verse 16 is that he formed a two-mouthed sword, so to speak. This is why in verse 20, he would associate that sword with the message from God or the word of God. And all throughout the Bible, this two-edged sword would become a metaphor for potent speech for sharp speech, for productive speech. It would become a metaphor for the word of God. This is why when you get into the New Testament, you read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and you read this description about the word of God. It says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, we are told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. You see, the process of victory in our lives happens when we see the Savior's concern that he wants to deal with our heart, and the way he gets into our hearts is through his Word. When he wields the sword of the Scriptures in our lives, and that means that if you're going to find victory over sin and guilt and shame and all the things that plague your life, you cannot find that victory apart from the sword, apart from the Word. This means you have to learn to read the scriptures and meet with Jesus. This means you have to open yourself up to the Bible and stop hiding from God's word. This means you have to let the scriptures search you out. That means there are going to be times when you open the Bible and read it, and the Bible's going to cut you. The Bible's going to hurt you. The Bible's going to show you what's wrong with you. But that's not something that you want to shrink back from and go into hiding 
from. It's something you want to press into because every time the Bible cuts us, it's always cutting us to, to claim us and to heal us and to restore us. It's wounding us to save us. So we want to trust the Savior's sword that every time we read the scriptures, it's like, man, that's God's standard and I'm way off base. What does it do? It drives me to Jesus. It says, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. So we want to see the Savior's concern. We want to trust the Savior's sword. We want to follow the Savior's lead. I love how this unfolds in the story that after the deliverer, after Ehud defeats the king and dethrones him, then we're told that the Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. He became their Lord. He became the one that they followed and look to where they follow him. They follow him out onto the battlefield because the Lord has handed over their enemies. And so they followed him. If you're going to experience the process of victory in your life, you've got to follow the Savior's lead. And this is perhaps one of the areas of our lives where we're most afraid to do that, and it concerns the areas of our shame. You see, if we follow the Savior's lead, that means we're going to follow him where? Into the light. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will have the light of life. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. But when it comes to areas of shame in our lives, this is where we don't want to follow his lead. Because if I'm going to follow Jesus' lead, I'm going to follow him into the light. But there are things that I want to keep hidden in the dark. There are things that I don't want to disclose to other people. But here's the deal. Life dies in the dark. And as long as you are hiding those areas of shame in your soul, your spiritual vitality is going to be sabotaged. So we want to follow the Savior's lead. We want to follow him out onto the battlefield, so to speak. And we want to see how Jesus has secured a victory for us to take hold of in our lives. Which would bring me to the next dynamic is in order to, in addition to following the Savior's lead, we want to see what the Savior has secured. We want to take hold of what Jesus has given us. And what Jesus has given us is deliverance. He's given us salvation. He's given us light that we can walk in. He's given us light that we can flourish in. But that's only going to happen when you and I follow him into the light and we go to war against the things in our lives that are plaguing us. And by his grace, we find those things being torn down in our lives and healing and salvation and deliverance rising within us. I saw a picture of this yesterday when a young lady I've been in community with for a long time who realized that she was hiding from things that had happened to her and there were sources of shame in her life tied to sexual abuse that she suffered and she was holding it back from everyone and not talking about it or disclosing it to anyone and, and she realized that that shouldn't continue to be, that she was doing herself a disservice by hiding in the dark and not talking about those things and disclosing her, her shame to others. Even though, And so what she did is she began to share her story. She began to step out in the light. She began to talk to the people who she was most close with and just kind of started there with that intimate circle of close friends that she could trust. And then in a concentric circle fashion, her story began to, she began to share her story with a wider and wider group of people so that more and more people were brought up to speed with what happened to her and the source of shame. And she found that the more she talked about it, the more she stepped into the light, that the shame that she felt, felt over what happened to her began to dissolve. And she began to experience victory. She began to experience liberty. And she began to experience God's grace perfecting his power in her Weaknesses, that area of deformity, she 
brought out into the light found healing and freedom. And the reality is, if you're going to overcome shame in your life, you, you're going to have to, at some point, trust Jesus enough to follow him into the light and to disclose the things that are really going on in you, disclose the things that you're really struggling with, whether it's things that you've done, whether it's things that's been done to you, or whether it's things that you think about yourself, you're going to have to step out into the light if you're going to experience freedom from all of these dynamics. If you're going to seize what the Savior has secured for you, you're going to have to step out onto the battlefield. You're going to have to go to war against those things. But understand that you're going to war from behind the Savior. The Savior's leading the charge, and you're just following in his wake. And you're going to find that as you are following the Savior out into the light, the Savior's grace is going to be sufficient for you. His power is going to be perfected in your weaknesses. And he's going to do things in you and for you that you never thought possible. This is the process of victory that is, I think, uncovered in the story of Ehud in this, in this passage. And this is a process of victory that I think we all would benefit from stepping into and growing and thinking about together. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of response. And I'm going to give you some Things, I'm going to encourage you to do some things over the next few moments as we do so. But let me, let me pray for us first.